Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, audio podcast listeners. This is an interview with Matt, the creator of the brand new game Tanglewood. And while the interview was great and we talked very much about the development and Matt's background, I just wanted to remind everybody that the YouTube version of this has footage of the game as well. It's footage that I recorded last night, and I think it's a great representation of the first time somebody's playing the game. Because while I did play the demo, this is the first time I'm actually sitting down and playing it. So if you're just sitting in your car or on a train listening, don't worry about it. But if you have the ability to watch, or if you want to go back and check some of the footage later on, the YouTube link will be in the description of the audio podcast. Thanks very much for listening, and here's the interview. Hey everybody, I am here with Matt from Big Evil Corp. How's it going? Hey, how's it going? Pretty good. So uh, I really wanted to talk to you about Tanglewood, obviously, but uh, about everything else behind the scenes. So for the very slim chance that somebody has their head in the sand, uh, can you please just give a short explanation of what Tanglewood is and what Big Evil Corp is? Yeah, sure. Um, Tanglewood's a brand new game for the Sega Mega Drive and Genesis. Um, it's a puzzle platformer um, that was created using the tools, processes, and equipment of the 1990s. Um, so it's trying to be um, as authentic a Mega Drive release as possible in 2018. It's being released on real cartridge, um, and it's being created by myself and a small team. We call ourselves Big Evil Corporation, mm-hmm. um, and it's our aim to make brand new games for classic consoles. So uh, this isn't uh, this isn't the only game that you guys have on the horizon. There's other games being planned. Yeah, we've got others in the works. Uh, we've been talking about a prequel to Tanglewood. Uh, we've also got a game in another genre um, in the design phase at the moment as well. Uh, we've got big plans for the future. Very cool. So um, the the basic overview, because I'm about two hours into Tanglewood at the moment. I think chapter three or four, uh, and it's. It looks and feels like every really great side-scrolling adventure game, but it's more of a puzzle game, which was intriguing. It was almost like a modern take on old Genesis games. And, uh, you know, no offense to, to anybody out there, but it was a, a breath of fresh air to not have another Genesis beat-em-up be released. Because while I do love those games, that's all that seems to be coming out for, for new development lately. So uh, it was completely different and awesome. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about how you came up with the idea to make something like that and, and what in your mind that side-scrolling puzzle adventure is? Yeah, sure. Um, every time I try and design a game, the first thing that comes to mind is a platformer because mm-hmm. uh, um, I've been with platformers for my entire life. They're my favorite genre. Everything from Sonic and Lion King on the Genesis, um, things like Flashback and Another World, um, all the way through the PS1 years, Abe's Odyssey, Heart of Darkness, Rayman, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, and even recently, I really love Play Dead's games, um, Inside and Limbo. Mm-hmm. Um, big fan of Ori in the Blind Forest, things like that. So platformers are really true to my heart. So um, I had to do a platformer first. So 
it, it just had to happen. <laughs> um, the the story itself was sort of a, a a mash of ideas I've had over the years, but I wanted something that was dark and moody. Um, and I definitely wanted to star a character that wasn't a hero. Um, he's not brave. He's really terrified. He's really scared. Um, he just wants to get out of the place, and you have to help him try and survive to the morning, basically. Um, so, yeah, it, it might be a bit of a breath of fresh air in that respect, because I didn't have a, a hero with uh, superpowers or anything like that. And uh, the first thing that I noticed about this game is that everything kills you. So it's not, you know, it's not Mario Brothers style where you just jump on somebody's head and you win uh, or you beat the enemy. Um, you really have to plan ahead and you have to make sure that you're very careful around everything, even the smaller enemies. Um, is that something that you guys had always planned or is that... Wait, you know what? I should, I should say that there's going to be spoilers in this. Not too many spoilers, but there's definitely going to be a little bit of spoilers and I guess that would be one of them. So, uh, at yeah. least in the first couple chapters, I mean, is that... Or, or did I miss something? Like, uh, um, are you able to, to kill the little enemies or something? Or is that really just a matter, a matter of avoiding and waiting to survive till morning? Um, no, the the whole game is supposed to be terrifying, and part of that is you're not, you you can't do much about the enemies around you. Um, you can coax them into traps, you can try and kill them by pushing boulders on the head or something like that, but you can't confront them directly. They will just eat you, um, and that that's part of the the horror aspect I tried to get through. Mm-hmm. Um, you can kill the little ones. Um, it's quite difficult to do. Um, I've been thinking about some achievements for Steam at the moment, and that's probably going to be one of the achievements I add. Um, it's not easy, but yes, you can do it. Um, so yeah, even the little ones will hurt you. They might seem friendly at first, but um, there's one enemy in there where you back up against a wall, and it'll suddenly turn on you, um, and then suddenly become not your friend. I think the only friendly thing in the game is the fuzzles. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's only because they've got no limbs to hurt you, I'm sure they... <laughs> They'd eat you if they could. <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, you know, I liked how you put that very, you know, one of the first things you run into with the game is I think it's a little squirrel or something that uh, it seems natural and intuitive to chase after it. And then as soon as you get up to the wall, at first I thought, do you die when you run into the wall? And then it, it probably took me one or two times to realize, like, oh, you got to really avoid everything. But, I mean, you put that right at the beginning, so it's not like somebody's an hour into it and, you know, and gets annoyed. It's a... Uh, it's a very easy and, and interesting learning curve to go through those things. I tried to design the uh, the first encounter of each enemy type is very special. So that first squirrel is very deliberately placed there. Um, so you've got space to chase them around. And there are two walls either side. So you can figure out for yourself what happens with the squirrel. Um, other enemies like the hog and the jack, there are little cutscenes to show them off for the first time. Um, and each new enemy is introduced in a little sandbox environment mm-hmm. uh, where it's just you and the enemy figuring out how to chase it. So I won't throw multiple ones at you. Um, I won't put puzzles in there. It's just you and the enemy figure out how to how to kill it. And then the next time you encounter one, it'll be in, in conjunction with a puzzle or there might be multiple of them. Um, and I'll, I'll make it a bit harder. So um, I was very, very careful about the learning curve there. Yeah, and... Um... You know, there, there were, I'm trying to word this properly. So in all of the best games, 
Um, you can't just play through on your first time. You have to die. You have to learn, uh, at least in my opinion. And then in a lot of the games, um, and it's about even from old to new, you're just, you're dying a million times. And it gets kind of, sometimes it's a little too much. Like I think Axiom Verge is a great example where um, you die a lot at first because it teaches you how to stay alive. It's a pretty, you know, pretty even thing. And then you have other games where it's just impossible. So I do like that the, the learning curve and the save points that you go through um, really makes it, I don't get bored playing it, you know, even if I have to figure something out and, you know, anybody that's watching the, watching this on YouTube is going to see the playthrough next to us and you could see at certain parts, I'm just going to end up having to go over and over, but it, it's, it's that perfect balance between needing to figure out what to do, uh, and, but not being too easy. You know, you don't, sometimes I just walked up and guessed and figured, all right, well, let me, let me push the thing over the ledge and then poof, there it was. And, you know, there's, but most of the time it's, it requires you to think. And I really enjoyed that. I, um, took most of those cues from Abe's Odyssey. Uh, I think the Oddwood game struck that balance really, really right. Um, you do die a lot in Abe's Odyssey, but every time you die, you learn something new. And eventually you'll you'll finish the puzzle. Um, it, it doesn't just kill you for the sake of killing you. Um, it, it's got a lesson to teach every time you die, and you'll spot something new when you die. Um, but I didn't I didn't sprinkle that all over the game. I didn't want every puzzle to be like that because it'll just get frustrating. Right. Uh, I wanted the game to be hard, but if it starts getting frustrating, that's a different ballpark. Um, I, I didn't want it to to go too much into frustration. Yeah, there's definitely a fine line between difficulty and challenge, where it's just, you know, too hard, you're frustrated, but that right level is just something that always makes you want to keep playing and get that satisfaction when you figure out the puzzles. And, I mean, at least as far as I've gotten up to, um, you're, you know, you've certainly nailed that. Um, one of the things that I did notice, though, playing it on, on Steam uh, and playing the ROM on original hardware, as people are seeing here, uh, it was... It, I missed having the instruction booklet. I didn't, uh, you know, the, obviously the physical release hasn't hit everywhere yet. And uh, is there a place, is there a way to get information on the game? Does your website have what everything's called? Um, does it have, like, the, the golden leafs? Like, is there yeah. a place to go and figure out what all of that is? Yeah. Uh, fire up the game and press escape. That's it? <laughs> yeah, press escape. What about the Genesis version? Is there in like a, a menu somewhere, or is that just lucky uh, guess? For the ROM download, no, I'm afraid not. If you um, fire up the game in Steam and press Escape, you can read the read the uh, the Genesis user manual there. Um, and if you dig into the Steam files, you can probably dig out the image for that as well. If you want to read it offline, that's very um, cool. So the cartridge version will be coming with the manual, um, just like an original Genesis game. Um, I even want it to smell like an original Genesis game. <laughs> Um, if, if somebody buys it from a shop and sits in the back seat of the car with their parents driving them home while they read the manual, uh, that would be amazing to hear. <laughs> uh, even if they're 35 years old, ring up your parents and get them to drive you home from the shop so you can sit in the back. You know what's funny is my mom would totally do that, and if my dad was still around, he'd probably be rolling one up in the front seat doing the same thing. <laughs> so. it's, it's something I really miss. Yeah, Especially that's... trying to read it by streetlight as well. That's... Mm. I have fond memories of that. Well, the one thing I don't miss, and the one thing that this game allows for people to do, is I don't miss going into a store, seeing an amazing cover of a game, reading the back, 
saving my money. I used to mow lawns. Whatever, whatever an 11-year-old could possibly do that borders on child labor, I did it just to be able to get my games. And then going home, plugging in that cartridge and having a shitty game was just the worst experience ever. Especially when it's a game that, like, you know, maybe your friends like, but you don't, because it's just not your style. It's still shitty to me, so it's, uh, you know, that's why I really love the whole, you could download and play the demos. Uh, you know, you could see footage online, at least of the, you know, the first part of the game. So, while I agree 100% that uh, recreating that experience of opening the cartridge, playing it, having that same feel, that's incredible and it's important for a lot of things. Not just for nostalgia, but for people just getting into it. But I'm so very happy you had a demo out there. <laughs> Uh, did you buy um, Rise of the Robots back in the day? No, I don't think I did. That's one I saved up for, and uh, that, that was a, a big disappointment. <laughs> um, so yeah, I've tried to be um, almost completely open and honest about the game's development all the way through. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, every time there was a new environment, I would post screenshots. Every time I had a new gameplay feature, I'd post a little video uh, to make sure that expectations were in line with what people were really going to get. Um, so obviously being a Kickstarter, you have to be very open about the development um, as a baseline, um, but I tried to go above and beyond that. Um, obviously there's a lot of, uh, depending how far you got in the game, there's a lot of kept secret as well. Um, I tried very hard to hide certain aspects of the game while making it seem like I was telling people everything about it. Um, is it uh, is it a secret on how many chapters there are? I, I certainly don't want to give away too much. Uh, no, that's eight. Eight, okay. So I think that's 20, 27, 28 levels altogether. All right. Split up eight channels. Channels. Chapters. So, chapters, yeah. So I, I definitely have enjoyed exploring so far, but uh, I'll make sure to not uh, not give away anything anything that people might want to discover by themselves. Um, but you were talking about the Kickstarter, and you did go above and beyond uh, showing development and really have, giving people an expectation uh, of what's coming. And But I think what's more important is I don't think at any point anybody said, oh, yeah, this game's never coming out. Whereas there's so many Kickstarters nowadays that are... I mean, I have some that, uh, some that I backed, some that I, I just followed because I thought they were interesting that are... I mean, seven years old or something, and never, it's still not released. So it was good to know that uh, I never got the feeling that this wasn't going to be released. I always kind of felt like, all right, it's definitely coming. So uh, I think you guys did a great job with that. There was a very long delay, um, about eight or nine months, I think. It was supposed to be out last November. Mm-hmm. Um, but everybody's been super cool with it. I don't think I've had a single angry message about that whatsoever. Well, that uh, is a direct reflection on how you guys acted, though. That is absolutely a reflection on, you know, just how you just put it out there and explained everything, you know? Sorry, I think we're getting Skype cut off at some here. Let me, uh... There's a bit of a delay. Yeah, sorry about that. Sorry for people watching. Um, hopefully it's catching back up at the moment. Um, so I guess let's, uh, since we had that forced pause there, <laughs> let's uh, switch over to the, the development side of things. Um, how did you even obtain some of the original developer tools for that? Well, that was really tricky. Um, most of it came from a site called Assembler Games, uh, which is for rare video game hardware. Um, there's a lot of talk of development equipment there, uh, people helping track stuff down. Um, the manuals came from a guy in Australia. Um, some of the cables and discs came from uh, the States, I think. Um, all over the world and not all of it worked as well 
Um, I had what I thought was a complete unit delivered from the start, but pieces were broken. Um, some bits weren't compatible, some of the cables didn't fit, so there was a almost an 18-month hunt for all the parts for this to try and get it working. Um, and even then, some bits still needed repair. Um, I had to find a, an engineer to help me fix all this and get it together. Um, and even when it worked, we, we had no idea how to use it either. So <laughs> another six months there trying to uh, figure out how to do certain things, how to get code on it, how to load up binaries, um, how the debugger worked. Um, it was a very long, slow learning process. Um, but I'm glad we got there in the end because um, the development environment like no other. Um, it's extremely fast to use. You make a change, there's two or three buttons to press, and then you see the changes live. Oh, wow. Uh, with source-level debugging, so you can step through your source code as well. And at the time, there was nothing like that anywhere else. Um, there were no emulators with this stuff built in, um, certainly not source-level debugging. Um, some have caught up now. There are some better tools available in emulators now. Um, but at the time, it was an absolute breakthrough because um, I've been trying to learn with an emulator, trying to debug raw binaries um, without any source code whatsoever. Um, and it, it was really challenging, and I wasn't getting very far. But as soon as this kit was working, things just exploded. Um, and I had the basics of the engine written within a month once that started working. Oh, wow. So getting the right tools really helped. This project wouldn't have happened if I hadn't had, hadn't had that dev kit. Certainly wouldn't. <laughs> so... Um... I assume it's like most other Sega hardware, where when you got it, it probably required a lot more repair than, than other dev kits from the era. Probably a yeah. bunch of leaking capacitors and maybe some parts that, uh, you know, there's not much documentation on that whoever your engineer you found probably had to just figure out on their own. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't help that it looks like a, a Frankenstein modded beast. Um, it looks like they've taken an actual Genesis, ripped it apart, uh, shoved a load of components in there and then bolted it all back together. Um, it's a very Frankenstein-looking machine, um, but they were the original kits. They were the proper deal. Um, they just look really strange back there because cost-cutting, I guess. Um, why why make a new mold for the thing where you can take an original Mega Drive shell and just rip it apart? Yeah, it's a very Sega thing to do. And uh, for people that haven't seen pictures, it's the ones. It looks almost like people took a, a drill, drilled holes in it, and put screw-on switches in certain places, right? That's probably exactly what they did. Yeah. They looked <laughs> um, is yours one of the ones with the Sega CDs built in as well? Yeah. All right, yeah. so it's that big monstrosity of a thing covered in switches and dials and stuff. It's very loud as well. I need to get the fan replaced. It's like a jet engine. Oh, wow, really? Putting <laughs> that thing on 12 hours a day in your office. <laughs> you need noise-canceling headphones with it. Yeah, you go crazy. Yeah, and, and where I work now, there's an, an air conditioning unit right next to me. And if uh, when I turn it off for the interviews, I'm usually drenched in sweat in about two minutes. So it's uh, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. So <laughs> it gets noisy. You, uh, it's it's hard to to just tune it out and pretend it's not there. But um, well, weird segue. But speak, speaking of sounds, uh, I at least so far up to the fourth chapter, I thought it was. I liked the music very much, and I liked the the approach that you took to it. It, it wasn't. The music when it was on was very, I liked it, it was cool music, but there wasn't constant loud music through the whole thing. It was very, there were parts where I, I feel like you deliberately made sure that there wasn't much going on in the sound of, uh, sound aspects, just to kind of make it even, maybe a better way to describe it is make you feel even more alone because there's not there, kind of like Alfred Hitchcock and the birds. Uh, was that intentional? Yeah, it certainly was. Um, I was very particular about the sign design right from the start. 
Um, I, I do like a lot of 16-bit games that have constant rolling BGMs, um, Sonic and stuff like that, but it has to be an upbeat, catchy tune, otherwise it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and that style really didn't suit the genre of this game at all, so I had to go back to the drawing board. Um, there's music whenever something interesting happens. If you discover a new area, um, or you're being chased by something, um, or there's a story element happening, you'll get music. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, it's just you and the control pad um, rolling puzzles around, trying to figure out puzzles. Um, and I didn't want constant rolling background music getting in the way of that. Um, it, it would have sort of ruined the environment I tried to set up. Yeah, I guess um, to, to stick with the Genesis reference, it, it's very reminiscent of Echo the Dolphin that way. Where, uh, you know, like when you play Echo, you turn it on and it's, you know, it's, you're, you're just a fish in the water, quite literally. So, yeah, I loved it. I thought that was very cool. And, uh, you know, you have the sound test menu right at the beginning for anybody that wants to, to hear and listen to any of the tracks um, just to experience it. Um, so I, I like how you, you did both Steam and a Genesis ROM, because for anybody that really enjoys the classic consoles, or for any newcomers, because there's shockingly a lot of younger people uh, really getting into these older games and the older consoles, um, you know, was this always a plan to do both Steam and a Genesis game? Um, was there, you know, was it always in the back of your minds to maybe branch out to other things, or did this really just start as a Genesis game? Um, it, it did start just as a Genesis game, um, but I think uh, up to before the Kickstarter launched, um, I, I had it in the back of my mind that I, I wanted as many people to play this game as possible. Um, I'd spent a lot of time writing the story, um, trying to create an experience as well as a game, um, and I really wanted as many people to, to play this as possible. I'm not sure that would have been possible with just the cartridge version. Because um, obviously they're very slow and expensive to produce. Um, it's not an option for some people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I certainly couldn't keep making batches of this forever. Um, it takes up a lot of time. Um, it takes up a lot of space in my house, which I don't have left. <laughs> um, so I, I needed the game in another format, really. Um, and, and it's really helped. It's really helped having the Steam version out there. So many people are playing it. I'm getting so many comments on Twitter and things like that. Uh, from people who don't have a Mega Drive who are now trying to find a Mega Drive because they really want the cartridge version now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they sort of complement each other. There are people out there who just played the Steam version uh, desperate to get hold of a, a Genesis now. Um, some some have never owned one, uh, which is quite warming to, to hear that my game prompted them to buy the greatest console ever made. So. Yeah, that is that is pretty amazing. And uh, the way you do the password system, the, the continues... Um, I'm assuming that you could use the same password on Steam as you would on the Genesis cartridge, right? Yes, you would eventually. Um, at the moment, Steam has a save to disk feature. Um, it also lets you save at each individual checkpoint as well, whereas the Mega Drive version, um, the password sends you back to the start of that level. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, there's not enough um, information in the password to store all the checkpoint data. Um, so for for now, no, you can't transfer them. You can You can copy your password off the Steam version, and plug it into your Mega Drive, but you can't do it the other way around at the moment. Um, so there's going to be a patch coming probably next week to allow you to do that. Um, so I'll put the password feature back into the, uh, the Steam version. Oh, cool. Uh, it's supposed to be ready on launch, but we had some technical issues. Okay. You know, there's because there is a lot of us that have our retro gaming setups, but not, not everybody is able to have a dedicated setup in one spot. You know, I live in a, a small apartment, so mine is on wheels. 
and just sometimes I just I get ten minutes to go. I want to play a game, and you know, for, to roll over, plug everything in. It's five minutes, so I could totally see. Uh, I could see very often people wanting to run over and play some on the Steam, you know, practice a level they were having problems with, and then you know, later on when they have more time to actually sit, then go back and, uh, and you know, have their real Genesis hooked up to. You know, I've been playing it on um, a Sony BVM RGB monitor, so I feel like I'm getting. The, the coolest possible experience because I get to play a game for the first time on original hardware, but on the one of the best possible displays you could put it on. You know, mine's all RGB modded and all that. My Genesis to make sure it's as as clear of an output as possible. So it's pretty really cool. cool. I've got um, I've got a couple of CRTs I use for testing, but none of them are anywhere near as good as a PVM. Um, I did splash out for an OSSC recently though. And that's made a hell of a difference. I'm really glad I, I bought one of those. Um, it's the, the best retro experience you can have on a modern TV. Oh, absolutely. And isn't it uh, so interesting that the amount of detail that you could see that you would absolutely never be able to see on a CRT once it's blown up in 5X mode on a, you know, a, a nice flat screen? For better or worse, some, some games rely on the imperfections, um, <laughs> especially, uh, especially over in your area, NTSC. With mm-hmm. the color bleed and things, some people have done some really cool tricks with that color bleed. Um, so you got you got some some experiences that we didn't have in the UK mm-hmm. uh, because of your TV system. Um, but yeah, OSSC completely breaks that and it shows all the raw pixels bare. So yeah, for better or worse, really. Did you uh, did you at all think uh, at at any point about putting in some of those weird tricks for people that might be playing it in composite video somewhere, or did uh, did you just do straight dev on a flat screen? Um, probably not uh, composite or uh, any NTSC tricks because I'm trying to launch it on many different platforms, mm-hmm. and, and times have moved on. Back when everybody had a CRT, I could have gotten away with that. Um, but if the game relied on a particular trick working on a particular type of TV, you can't do that in 2018. Um, it won't work for everyone. Nobody will get it. There might be some hardcore fans who will try and obtain the exact setup required to play. Mm-hmm. Um, that'll be few and far between. Um, there are other tricks I thought about putting in. Uh, ways to try and display more colors than the Genesis is capable of. Um, there's been a few demos now showing that trick off. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, some of those rely on specific emulators if you want to do it on PC. Um, there are some clone consoles like the Retron 5, which won't be able to do things like that. And if you start doing that, you're just limiting your audience at that point. Yeah, absolutely. To try some tech demos one day. I'd like to show off what I can do with the machine. Um, but I don't think any of that will make it into a game that I release. Hmm. Yeah, you know, good point and, and all that stuff. And uh, it's funny because I've gotten into to some pretty interesting debates with people who are who say that the right way to play these games is composite video you know with all the blurs on it but i got to say i mean i'm i mean i obviously i run retrorgb.com i just i'll i'll take a weird looking waterfall in sonic and crystal clear everything else over blurry everything else in a cool waterfall effect so <laughs> i really like um i've got a nice 15 inch dell lcd that i do most of my development on and uh, through the OSSC, that's perfect for me. I'm, I'm really happy with my setup. Out of curiosity, what's the resolution of the monitor? It's uh, 1024768. Cool. Um, so who else is involved in the team, and, and what role did you guys play in all of this? Um, I had contractors for about six months, um, uh, some, some a bit longer. 
the composer, Nathan Stanley, uh, known as Freeze Dream. Um, he released his own album on Mega Drive Cartridge a couple of years ago. Um, so he certainly knew what he was doing right from the start. Um, very good at wrangling those chips. A really good composer. Great at sound effects. He was perfect for the team. Um, Matthew Weeks, he worked on Freedom Planet. Uh, he's the environment artist. Um, he did a lot of the level design as well. Um, Freedom Planet was fantastic. A really good game. I really enjoyed it. Um, and it was exactly in the style I was looking for. Um, I think he even limited himself to to limited palettes when he was designing that as well. Uh, so he already had the experience. He'd not worked on Mega Drive before, um, but he fell into the role very, very, very well. Um, he dealt with it. Uh, who else? Armin Modorossian, um, character artist and cutscene storyboard artist. Uh, he worked on Pierre Sola and The Great Architects. Uh, from Watermelon, yeah. Watermelon. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, he he absolutely knocked it out of the park. I'm so happy with his work. Um, he did some of the characters and enemies, um, helped me with the cutscenes, did the storyboarding. Uh, really, really nice work. I'd really like to work with him again. Um, Christoph Mattis, uh, he's an Amiga artist. Um, he did a lot of the enemy design. So he did the little hog thing that chases you. Uh, the Borgus boss fight that's later on in the game. Um, he designed him. Um, and a lot of the finishing work. He did a lot of palette work for me, trying to do finishing touch. And he, he gave the game its its polish, its final shine. So uh, really happy with him as well. So um, when, did you, when did you really get the idea to do this? When did you know that you wanted to, to make this a thing and be very serious about it and, and actually go through the, the, the craziness that it took to get here? Um, it was, um, well, the idea's been with me since childhood um, because I had a, a Commodore 64 at the same time as I had a Mega Drive. So I was learning to code games from the age of eight or nine. Um, and... Being able to see my own Mega Drive game on a shelf was a dream I had since I was very, very young. Um, and that never left me. Um, but to do it seriously, um, took a talking to some people at Traveller's Tales. Uh, they made Sonic 3D, Mickey Mania, Pugsy, um, a few others, Toy Story. Um, I got to work with them on the Lego games for a couple of years. Um, and hearing their stories of coding for the Mega Drive back in the day. Um, they gave me a load of tips to get started, um, so I thought it was probably about time I actually finally learned this programming language and got on with it. Uh, so for a while, about three or four years, it was done as a hobby behind the scenes. I was making small test games, uh, trying to work on my platformer engine. And I showed off some stuff on YouTube, uh, a basic platformer with Sonic running around it. And a load of people piled in and said, you should make something of this, you should finally do it. And a load of friends convinced me to, to actually run a Kickstarter and actually take it seriously. Um, so I drafted up a proper proper game design. I got a friend to help me with some artwork. Uh, and we put a demo together for the Kickstarter um, all the way through 2016 that took. So it took about a year to, to get that demo together. Um, and it, it took off with flying colors. And here we are. That's pretty awesome. So uh, you've been kind of programming games since you were a kid then? Yeah, um, for better or worse. I didn't get on with it very well from the start. I kept trying and trying and trying and failing and failing and failing. I think part of the problem was I didn't know any other programmers, so I was sort of trying to work with it on my own just by reading books and things like that. 
Um, there was nobody to help me, nobody to teach me. So I tried, and all the way through to my teenage years, I carried on trying, uh, making small 3D games in a, a language called Dart Basic that I found, um, which was a 3D-capable basic. And I kept trying, I kept failing, kept falling over. Still wanted to do it as my career, but it wasn't going very well. Mm -hmm. um, once I got to university, everything flipped on its head. Um, I had people to teach me, I had uh, other students there to, to work with, and suddenly everything started clicking into place. Um, I started to get very good at it very quickly. And from then on, I made my own 3D engine, uh, my own suite of tools, level editor, animation editor, things like that, and, and everything started to get good. And by the third year of university, um, I, I, I was very good at it and um, managed to make my own game on my own engine using my own tools. Um, and that landed me the job at Traveller's Tales, where I figured out just how little I actually knew. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> welcome to growing up. You think you know everything, and then you realize you don't know a thing at all. <laughs> I didn't know a single thing my first year of Traveller's Tales. It was awful. Uh, but that, that kept happening. All the way through my career, uh, I would be at a company for a couple of years, get really good at what I was doing, join another company, realizing I didn't know anything at all, <laughs> starting again from scratch. But each time it was a new set of skills, so I kept building on what I knew. Eventually I had sort of a, a wide range of skills across all of game development. So um, using all that knowledge, I managed to go at my own and, and started this, this game on my own. Um, I managed to get to, uh, to the point of needing an artist quite quickly. So you've been uh, you've been working on game development since you graduated, pretty much, right? Yeah. What were some of the other games that you'd worked on over the years? Um, a lot of the Lego franchise, everything from Lego Indiana Jones two, all the way through to Lego The Hobbit. Uh, so there were thirteen games, thirteen mm -hmm. Lego games I worked on, um, and one movie as well. I worked on uh, Lego Batman the movie. Oh wow! Not really. Not that Lego Batman movie, the other Lego Batman movie. I have to clarify that every time because there's two now. Um, yeah, TT and TT Animation made the original Lego Batman movie back in 2012, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and then the Lego movie came out and then they made a sequel with Batman. So uh, that was a different Lego Batman movie. So it was all very confusing. Um, but I did some of the um, special effects tech that they used to render the film. Um, in that first one, I'm, I'm quite proud of my work on that. Um, uh, I uh, I coded the explosions, put it that way. Oh, that's, that's cool. Quite a big claim to fame. Um, then I moved on to Crytek, um, Crytek UK. Mm -hmm. It's on Homefront: The Revolution. Um, I also worked on the in-game in arcade machine that played Time Splitters 2 uh, within Homefront: The Revolution, um, which is one of my favourite projects I've ever worked on. Um, from there, I worked on a game called Songbringer, which is a very Zelda-like pixelated story game. Mm -hmm. um, I did the uh, I helped with the PS4 and Xbox One ports of that. I didn't develop the game itself. Um, a couple of unannounced things that I'm still working on, um, and obviously Tanglewood. <laughs> you know, when uh, when you talk about working on ports of different games, one thing that I've always I've asked many people, but it sounds like you have such a wide variety of experience. Uh, I'm looking forward to your opinion on this. But what's it like to port a game from one platform to another? Do you in in today's world? Do you have to do you have to take all of the artwork and re-import it into a different set of tools and basically rewrite the game from scratch? Is there a lot of development tools available that help this 
I mean, what's that? What's that like, really? It completely depends on the project um, and what language it was originally written in, uh, what tools were originally used. Um, uh, if it's a if it's a modern game, it's easier because it will probably be written in C or C plus plus, which means all you have to do is is get it to build with a different compiler. Um, that doesn't take many changes. Um, and if it's a, a completely different platform with a different type of renderer, you have to write a new renderer on it. Um, but you don't generally have to touch any of the gameplay code. Once that's written, it's written. Um, and that can be left alone apart from bug fixes and things like that. So you, you, you take a game, you compile it for a new compiler, um, and then you rewrite the render and the input system, the things outside the game um, that help it tick. Um, I'm a bit of a sadist in that respect because I really enjoy that kind of stuff. Um, every time I port a game, I just pr approach it as a set of engineering challenges. Uh, and I really like that stuff. Other people don't. I know a lot of coders who can't abide pro uh, porting whatsoever. They'd rather be writing something fresh and new or working on a new IP or something like that, and they don't like it. Um, but I, I, I tend to snatch those projects off them and, and take them head on because I really enjoy that. Um, Time Splitters 2 was my favorite because uh, that was a game written in the early 2000s in C for the GameCube and PS2, uh, an original Xbox, and I was porting it to PlayStation 4 and Xbox One, um, and that was one of my favorite projects to do. Uh, that was quite a leap in technology, so there are a lot of challenges to overcome. Um, one of the biggest problems was that we'd, uh, it was originally written for 32-bit processors, and obviously everything's now 64-bit processors. And depending how a game's coded, usually that's not a problem. But in Time Splitters, it was a big deal. Um, they'd done some things that very re relied very heavily on 32-bit processors that really weren't working on 64-bit. Um, so there were a lot of challenges to overcome there. And I really like that stuff. I really enjoy it. I grab those kind of challenges by the horns, and I, and I take those on. Um, so it depends who you ask, and it depends what project. But for me, porting has been a great experience on everyone I've worked on. I do. Um, I always like to hear uh, when games are ported as opposed to emulated, because while nowadays there are some pretty amazing emulation engines, look at Xbox 360 on Xbox One X. Uh, but in the past, growing up, there was, uh, you know, whenever you saw some of the like the Genesis games on PS2, didn't always come out that well. Um, you could always tell the difference. <laughs> Uh, so how did you approach the the two different plat platforms for Tanglewood, Genesis and Steam? Did you have to do simultaneous uh, coding, or, or were you able to somehow port it in a different way? Well, there's three platforms in the mix, because um, the, the Dreamcast port coming soon as well. Oh, that's uh, right. So all, all three of them had different approaches. Um, the uh, Steam version is emulated. It's got an emulation core under the hood. Mm -hmm. uh, try to disguise that as much as possible. Obviously, you, you press go and the game starts up just like it's any other game. Um, but under the hood, there's uh, an emulation core written by some friends at Crytek back when I was working there. And uh, they gave him permission to use the source code for my own evil ways. Um, and it's, it's butchered around so much they probably wouldn't recognize the original source <laughs> code anymore anyway. Uh, we've done so much to it, so many upgrades to it, so many optimizations. Um, it, it's sort of our own thing now. Um, so that's powering that PC version. But the Dreamcast version is a complete rewrite from the ground up um, in C++. Um, but we, we managed to use one trick that really helps because all of the tools that we used to design the levels and the animation, uh, the cutscenes and things like that are using our own in-house engine. 
and all we've done is ported the engine that runs the level editor over to Dreamcast. So it already knows how to open the scene files and render NIM and draw the scenery. Um, it already knows how to do physics queries and things like that. Um, so there's a quite large chunk of that engine already written for us because we'd already written it for the level editors. Um, so that really helped. So it really didn't take long to get a scene running on Dreamcast and having NIM run around because all that code was already written. Um, the biggest part is the gameplay because all the gameplay, all the mechanics have to be completely redone because um, those weren't done in the editor. Those were hard-coded in uh, in assembly. Um, so that's quite a big job to do. Um, so yeah, there's, there's three versions of the game uh, for Mega Drive, Dreamcast, and PC. Um, and it's going to get even more complicated because once the Dreamcast version's done, we're going to use that as the basis for the HD re-release on PlayStation 4 and Xbox One, uh, possibly Switch. So there'll be four versions of this game outside um when we're done so yeah now are the uh, the playstation and xbox versions confirmed is that something that's definitely happening at some point no um i work for a porting house on the side um so i'm going to try and discuss with them um about using i've already got the equipment because i use it for the other tasks but uh i'm going to try and ask them very nicely if i can use it to do my port and see if they'll publish it for me um I mean, if I was the other end, it would be a no-brainer. This game's already made. Uh, I've already got all the equipment to do it. I could probably port it in a couple of weeks, and then all they have to do is uh, is, is put it on the storefront. But obviously, I, I'm oversimplifying here, obviously. But mm-hmm. I, I hope they'd see it as a low-risk, high-reward project. So we'll see. And uh, for programming for the Switch, is that a completely different animal, or is it just uh, is it not as crazy as as like I believe the Wii U was annoying to write for? I think I'm, I'm remembering that correctly. Um, obviously, it's all covered under NDA, so there's only so much I can say. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I rather enjoy coding for Nintendo platforms because it's very different. Um, like I said, I enjoy engineering challenges. And uh, they bring their own sets of engineering challenges. It's funny because there's certain things that I do uh, that other people look at and they're like, that looks tedious and boring and awful and I love it. And it's the opposite. There's other things that I do where I'm like, I would give anything to not be doing this right now. Where some of my friends, some of my nerd friends, I mean that respectfully, obviously, are like, oh no, I love doing that. So it's kind of funny, you know, whatever the things people enjoy. You know, some people like chocolate, some people like vanilla. It's the same thing. You just, you like what you like. Uh, games development is such a broad field. There's so many things to do: coding, artwork, porting, optimization, audio, voiceovers. There's just so much to do. Um, so if you don't like one certain aspect of games development, that doesn't mean you're going to hate games development. Uh, there's so many other areas you can work in. So yeah, um, it, it's not for everyone. Um, it's hard work, um, but it's extremely rewarding. And uh, if anybody wanted to try it, I recommend they they take it head on. Are there certain things, uh, certain steps that you would recommend people take that are looking to get in this for the first time? Maybe they just want to design a small thing, a small game to see if it's something they're into? Um, Yeah, I guess just do it. And I know know that's a cliche answer, but it's very true here. A lot of people worry about what's going to happen if they try. Are they going to be good enough? Um... 
they they start doing research before they start and they get lots of books and they get drowned in the details no no just try just download something and that helps you make a game and just make a game um you'll, you'll figure it out bit by bit just just get on with it yeah you know the hardest step is very often just just doing it just taking the first step towards it and i've had a few people say you know i want to start a podcast you know and they have a long list of question questions and i say just start out just grab one of those logitech webcams plug it in and start talking and then ask the questions just just get into it do it uh, so is there is there one set of software tools is there one very easy step one that you would recommend not easy but uh you know one uh, one easy to envision step one that you could recommend to people where they just say, you know, download this set of software tools, use this program. You know, is there anything like that you could recommend? There's so many at the moment, um, which really helps. Um, there's Game Maker and Game Maker Pro. Mm -hmm. um, I've got a few friends working for them now, um, trying to improve those tools. Um, there's one called Love 2D, um, uh, which is gaining a lot of popularity at the moment. Um, if you'd have asked me a couple of years ago, I'd have recommended a tool called XNA, which was Microsoft's game development learning platform on the Xbox 360. Um, and one of the big deals with that is you could actually, no matter your background or how small you are, you could see your game running on an actual Xbox 360 if you owned one. And that was a big deal for me. Um, I bought one of those through university when they started the XNA program. I could write Hello World and then hit F5 on the keyboard and it would fire up on my Xbox the other end of the room and I could see my own work on an actual real game console. <laughs> that was a big deal, a really big deal. Um, they've continued something like that on Xbox One. Um, it's not quite the same as the XNA platform. That was a lot more welcoming for beginners. Um, but if you do have an Xbox One, um, I'd, I'd recommend looking into that and seeing how to view your work on a real xbox um it's such a confidence boost doing something like that that's pretty awesome now you'd uh you know you talked about coding when you were a kid and you mentioned a few games that you'd uh i guess must have made a difference for you but was there ever was there ever a moment that you knew like was there that that light bulb moment where you were like i i really have to be a game developer this is this is it for me um that would have been another world um, I think you call it out of this world over there. Yeah, I'm so used to the regional changes now. I, I, I've heard both. so. <laughs> um, that was a very cinematic platformer um, with lots of small incidental game, moment-to-moment uh, -moment gameplay elements. You'd be fighting one boss that you'd never see again and there'd be like small enemies running around that you'd, you'd defeat once and then they're, they're gone for the rest of the game and you move on to something else and I, I really liked that because it kept it fresh every moment of the game was new uh, there was nothing boring about it there was no re nothing repetitive going on um, that game kept me engrossed from start to finish um, and I dabbled with ideas for games before and I told my parents I want to be a games designer um, but that was just a kid being a kid it wasn't until Another World and, and Flashback as well. I went out and got a Flashback when I, when I found Another World. And um, that that was it for me. I had to do that. I had to make a game like that. And I wanted to do that as a living. I'd read up on uh, Delphine Software and uh, the, the guy behind it. And I wanted to be him. I really wanted to be him. Um, so, yeah, that, that was probably my aha moment to, to try and take this seriously. 
That's very cool. It's it's funny how those memories are so clear, you know, such defining, even the smallest little moment could be so defining sometimes. That's pretty neat. So, um, I mean, I think we covered all ground. Uh, I really like the game. I'm looking forward to finishing it, assuming I could beat it. Maybe I'm not going to be able to, but uh, I just, uh, I really love to see stuff like this, and especially somebody and a team of people that approach this uh, in the coolest way. You know, I want to make a real Genesis game with a real experience that as many people can play as possible. Um, I think the only, the only thing left to ask, I guess, really, is how, how do you feel being somebody that pours so much of yourself into these games, what's your thought on some of the piracy things and, uh, you know, some of the ROM sites getting shut down lately and, and really kind of your thoughts on piracy and, and pirating of Tanglewood? Uh, uh, two different thoughts on piracy. Um, piracy overall, um, the only way to beat pirates is to provide a better service than the pirates. Um, people keep asking if they can have a DRM-free version of the game. Um, and if I didn't provide that, they would just pirate it. So I provided a DRM-free version of the game, and I got an extra couple of sales. Uh, there are pirates who will just pirate anyway. They, they don't care. They, they really couldn't care less. Um, they'll do it for the sake of doing it. Um, they'll doing it, do it because they're so used to it. Um, they'll do it because they can't afford the game. You won't win those people over. There's nothing you can do. Anti-piracy measures won't stop them. It's just a waste of your time, efforts, and money. Um, so if you really want to beat them, provide a better service, um, make the games fantastic, make them worth the money, make people want to buy them, um, cheap cash, cash grab, sorry, muddling my words, cheap cash grabs won't win people over, um, harsh monetization won't win people over, uh, harsh DRM won't win people over, the only people you're hurting there is legitimate customers, so... Yeah, to beat pirates, be better than the pirates. And I, I guess that sort of folds into what Nintendo are trying to do now with taking these ROM sites down. Because they haven't provided anybody with an alternative. There's only one way to play these games right now. There's some of the ones they've abandoned, but they haven't released for the new virtual console. And the only way to ever play these games is by piracy. So if you don't offer them an alternative, people who want to play these games are only going to go to one place to do it. And... If, if Nintendo don't like that, I'm not sure what they can do about that um, other than re-release them all or provide their own ROM site where you can pay 99p for an, an abandoned niche game from the late 80s that they're never going to support again. Um, I would like it if somebody banded together and figured out a way to make it legal to do this. Maybe there's a time limit on a game's license if it hasn't been renewed in 30 years and then it's out in the public domain and then it's legal to do so if there was a proper legal definition of abandonware maybe we could solve all this maybe if you don't renew your license for a game after 30 years it officially falls into abandonware under an official definition and then it can be pirated because you ha if you haven't done anything to actively enforce it in 30 years uh, what's it going to do it's not going to hurt you at all if, uh, if if you lose this one game I don't know I'm not a legal professional <laughs> how that would work in the real world um, I'm, I'm just a, some opinion sucker yeah um, any other 
It's hard. It's always hard to think about stuff like this because um, both games and, and music, music always hits home for me too. But I mean, they're I, one of my favorite bands on the planet. Um, one of my friends said, "Hey, I think you might like this band. You know, maybe you should." And I, this was right when Napster first came out, so MP3 is still kind of new. This wasn't the age we're in now, where you could just go on YouTube. And they said, "You know, maybe you should download an album and see what you think." And I downloaded a couple albums. And I really liked him, and then I went to see him live, and that was it. I think I've seen him 23 times. I've bought every one of their albums, T-shirts, DVDs, and if I hadn't stolen their albums, I mean, I was 19. I would have never, I would have never gone out and spent 40 bucks hoping that I liked the music. It was just, it wouldn't have happened. That 40 bucks could have gone to a lot better things at 19 years old. But because I stole it, now, I mean, now they've gotten, they've gotten a, a, a repeat customer every time they put something out. And I feel it's the same way with games with me. And I, I do like demos for newer games. And I, I, do, I do certainly like ROMs for, you know, somebody will say, oh, hey, you know, remember that game? You should go give it a try. And I'll play it. And if I don't like it, I'll never play it again. And if I do like it, and it's one of my favorites, I very often go and hunt down uh, the cartridge. I want, you know, the, a nice quality, the booklet, everything else. And... You know, like, I agree 100% with what you said about your pirates are never going to change. If somebody wants to do it for the fun, because they like stealing, because they need to steal it, whatever it is, you're never going to stop them. Um, but I just, uh, I agree on the other side of things too. There's a whole bunch of people out there where if they had the option, option to try and then buy, I think no one would complain. And I don't have any answers for it, unfortunately, so... The interesting thing about that analogy with music um, is that problem's already been solved uh, because we've got things like Spotify now and other streaming services where you just pay a monthly subscription and you can listen to whatever you want. And if you don't like something, it's not really cost you much. You just stop listening to it and then you move on to something else. If you happen to find a new favorite band and then you start listening to that album a hundred times a week, um, they, they get more they get more of your money. Um, the same with films as well. I mean, Netflix has absolutely dominated the world. Um, I, I can watch whatever I want for a, a fixed monthly subscription. Um, I, I can't remember the last time I pirated either music or, or movies. I, I don't generally don't remember the last time that happened. Well, you so, did uh, you did miss two very big pieces of the puzzle with that. Uh, music solved for the listener, but not for the artist, because the artist uh, doesn't make anything off of YouTube or of Spotify. Uh, and that I'm still convinced that's just the greed of YouTube and Spotify. I, I think they could pay out musicians. And with movies, uh, there are so many movies that are not available to stream, and some aren't even available to purchase anymore. So that that's something that's also a big debate of, you know, there was a few times in the past few years where somebody said, oh, I really want to watch this movie. And I went on, you know, those sites where you could see where it's available to purchase. And I was just ready to drop 20 bucks, you know, and, and stream it because a bunch of people were over. We're all having fun. And it wasn't available anywhere. So I just fired up a torrent and downloaded it and watched it. And I would have rather paid for it. I would have rather had a, a higher quality copy. Uh, and I think, you know, it's, it's definitely that way with games as well. And I, we as a, uh, you know, me the fan, you the game developer, need to try to figure something out uh quite you know not us literally but we all need to put our heads together and figure something out for this because you know there's no reason why 20 years from now somebody shouldn't be able to play tanglewood it's a great game you know it's and if there's not the tools to do that then it's gonna suck for everybody
So yes, yeah. indeed. Yeah, there are two sides to it. I mean, neither of us are experts on this, but Nintendo are. Nintendo are. Why haven't they figured something out? You know, it's funny because I would actually consider you an expert on this. You somebody, you're somebody that's dedicated your life to video games, and that's what you do for a living. So while you're not a legal expert, um, having the insight of being on both sides of that, you know, I, I would be willing to bet that you haven't gone your entire life without downloading a single ROM, uh, but now you're the one making the game. Um, so it's uh, you, you get to experience both sides of that, where most people don't. I guess so. Um, my, my approach might be very different to others. Um, I'm going to be releasing the source code for the game um, in the interests of preservation uh, oh, wow. and education. So on Tanglewood's one-year anniversary, um, I'm dropping all the source code and all the assets on GitHub. Um, obviously, not every studio can do that. So so my solution is very different, um, and, and I wouldn't expect everybody else to, to be doing that, but um, that's just my own solution, really. Well, that's pretty incredible. Have you talked about that before? Did I just miss that somewhere? Um, I may have mentioned it in an interview once or twice. Uh, I don't think I've officially announced it. Yeah, Um, that's kind of a big deal. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'll make more noise about it when it happens, obviously, um, Mm -hmm. because a year from now, everybody would have forgotten. Um, But I I won't. That's a a big deal for me. It's, It's something I've always wanted to do, so... You know, it's funny, too, because a lot of people seem to think that when you put something up for open source, it's gone forever. And I know so many people uh, who have done open source projects who still sell the thing that they open sourced. And uh, their sales, you know, it's going to be different, obviously, with games, but their sales don't really take a hit. Because while a lot of people want to work on the project, make their own version, most people just want to buy it. They just want to have whatever it is that people have made and open sourced. So, I'd uh, I'd be very surprised if you did that and uh, you know suddenly you never sold another copy of the game afterwards. You know, well the the thinking was, am I really going to be selling that many in a year's time? I don't know. I hope I, so. I, I could let it go in a year. That's fine. Well, I mean, uh, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me and do all this. You know, it's uh, it's launch week. I'm sure you're you're swamped and and, and crazy busy. So I, I really appreciate this. Uh, yeah. Was was there anything that I forgot to mention that you wanted to tell people? Anything that uh, maybe um, you would want people to know about yourself or the project that I had uh, wasn't smart enough to ask? <laughs> um, not not that I can think of. No, I think you covered all bases. Well, uh, it's probably worth mentioning. There's one or two bugs found today on the PC version which I'm going to be patching um, probably tomorrow evening so um, if anyone's having troubles please please get hold of me tell me what your issue is there's a patch going out tomorrow evening I'll try and get a fix in for whatever issue you're having and what is the best way for people to follow you and talk to you Uh, Twitter, Facebook, is there a preferred medium always Twitter Uh, I'm, I'm really quick on the replies on Twitter Yeah, I noticed. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for making a game that that I really love and really just a a totally new perspective on the console that I've owned since I was a kid. So uh, thank you for everything, and I'm really looking forward to anything that you uh, come out with in the future. Yeah, it won't be my last game on the machine. Trust me on that. Awesome. Take care, Matt. Cheers. Thank you very much.